Yes, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful promise, a beautiful statement. Christ, our hope in life and death. Well, if I were to put you on the spot, and I'm not going to, and ask you to quickly tell me a, a verse in the Bible. Many of you, if confronted like that, would probably quickly go to John 3.16, wouldn't you? It's kind of the one that sits there that we know it's a favorite verse of the vast majority of Christians, and it is the most known verse, it's the most memorized verse, it's actually the first verse of the Bible that's, when, when a translation is made, it's the first verse to be translated into a foreign language, and it appears at most major sporting events as well. When theologian Karl Barth was asked one time to share his greatest thought, this is what he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Think on this. The only God, creator of the universe, to whom all creation must answer, and from whom all creation has strayed, this God has sent a revelation through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the world concerning what must happen to move from perishing to eternal life. Think about that. I want to share with you today the promise of all promises, I think. And it's found, it's wrapped up in one verse. It's contained in one verse, one sentence, in fact. And it declares how a person can be converted from perishing to eternal life. And if this conversion happens in a person's life, everything else will eventually all come into alignment. I think it's most appropriate for us as a congregation to declare that verse together. I know some of you have probably learned the only begotten son, but let's try and say the one and only son. Let's do this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Is that not a glorious promise? It's an, uh, unbelievable. And, and this, of course, Verse is stand out alone. It's, it's embedded in a story where Jesus is encountering a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And evidently, this Pharisee had heard Jesus teach on other occasions and was very impressed with him. And so he wanted to meet him personally. It says in the text in John chapter 3 that Nicodemus came by night. We presume that he did that because he didn't want his other Pharisee friends to see him interested in a conversation with Jesus. There's a lot going on there, of course, and John constantly talks about light and darkness and the contrast and all of that. But suffice it to say, it would appear that, that Nicodemus 
was quite fascinated by Jesus. So I want to pick it up at, at John chapter 3. I want to read the, the, the chapter or uh, to verse 21 of that chapter. And then let's, uh, let's take this journey together into the promise of promises. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling, ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him <clears throat> excuse me, may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you that we can be here together. Others can join us online. Thank you that we can gather together with our Bibles open to hear the truth of salvation, oh God, to pour through the evidence of your great love for us, to be reminded all over again the praise that is due you, the loyalty and love from us that is so, so due you, and, and to marvel at your grace that you would love us this much. So our Father, I pray that in two directions today. I pray that those who might be here or watching who don't know you, who don't know what Jesus has done for them, 
who've never responded to what Jesus has done might today have their hearts softened, their eyes opened, their ears unstopped by the power of the Holy Spirit and that salvation might come to lives today. But in the other direction, Lord, I pray for those who who know this truth and have embraced this truth and are living this truth. I pray, oh God, that we might just marvel all over again and that it might result in great hallelujahs from us to you. We might praise you and love you with all of our hearts, mind, soul, body, and strength. That we might reaffirm our loyalty to you, O God, where we have perhaps become complacent or disinterested. Lord, I pray that you would just be pleased to to take us once again to the, the glory of the cross, the incredible grace of our God, and that we might realize that we have been given a gift in salvation that is, that is for human words, escape us. There's, there's really nothing, there's no words good enough to describe the glory of what you have done for us. So Lord, I pray that, that you might choose to do that through your word today, the power of your spirit. For Jesus' sake I ask. Amen. You know, it appears here as we look at this that Nicodemus was taken by the amazing things that Jesus had done, that he had witnessed. And like most people, he was fundamentally trapped in experiences of amazing, miraculous signs. He says, basically, you know, you're doing some pretty amazing things around here, Jesus. From my perspective, I can only assume that you are approved of God. We're waiting to see what Jesus will say in response. You know, will Jesus say, well, thank you very much, Nicodemus. It's really nothing. It's nice that you think it's wonderful and all of that. I guess if we've known Jesus for any time at all, we're not surprised by how he responds. He doesn't receive flattery. He doesn't operate in that realm at all. In fact, he basically says to Nicodemus, you're kind of missing the point completely concerning these amazing things. They're not to entertain you or to leave you amazed at what I'm able to do. I'm actually not just a teacher approved by God. He points out that I've actually come to tell you the truth. These miraculous signs are all about that. I've come to tell you the truth. And the truth is this, Nicodemus. The most important truth that you'll ever hear. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, he's talking to someone from the highest of a religious council of Israel. Less a man is born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. I've been sent to tell you the truth. I'm not just approved by God. I've I've come from the very presence of God. See what he says in verse 13? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. I've actually 
I'm actually speaking to you as one sent from the very presence of the God of the universe to tell you the truth about the state of your heart and the destiny of your soul. And I've come to tell you about the particular role that I'm to play in revealing the way for men and women to get to God, to enter the kingdom of heaven. I speak of what I have seen and what I know, verse 11. So what is the problem that Jesus points out here? No one can see the kingdom of God unless he or she is born again. That's the problem. The problem is unbelieving and unbelief. The problem is perishing. The problem of every human being in this world is perishing. Dying and then perishing for all eternity. That's the problem. That's the key main problem. We have all kinds of people saying what the problem with the world, problem is this, problem is that, problem with the world is this. No, the problem, the problem for mankind is perishing for eternity. There's no other problem that needs to be solved than that problem. There are human temps solutions, of course, and Nicodemus kind of represented that. Works of religion, charity, miraculous signs, religious buildings, rituals. Jesus contrasts all that with the truth. And then, Nicodemus, there is the truth. The truth from one who came from heaven. Nicodemus was fixated on signs and sensibilities. Jesus takes him immediately to the spiritual problem in his life. The core problem. That if nothing changes in your life, Nicodemus, you are doomed to destruction and eternal separation from God. You will not see the kingdom of God. You will exist in deadness and conscious separation from God forever. Conscious separation from every good sensation forever. Signs won't fix your sin. Religious experiences, Nicodemus, won't fix your sin. That's why you are perishing. So then what is the promise? We know the problem. What's the promise? The promise is not perishing having eternal life. The most glorious of all promises, not perishing. Now, the prospect, by the way, of not dying has made people eager to be pincushions this past year. But where is the concern for their spiritual lives? There's great, great concern about physical lives. Very little eager concern about spiritual lives. That's why Jesus takes him from 
physical signs, miraculous signs, and all kinds of things like that, and takes them right away to the spiritual. Nicodemus, this is the great need of your life, the spiritual, because everyone's perishing. To those who do not think they are in need of this promise, the one who was sent from heaven has come to assure us that this is a problem. God has sent an emissary all the way from heaven to tell mankind the problem and to offer a promise, a rescue, a salvation. Unless you do something with Jesus, you too will perish. Because the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 that everyone is born dead in their trespasses and sins and condemned through unbelief. We don't have to look very far to see that statement. In verse 18, it says, whoever believes in him, meaning Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Stands condemned already. We call this in theological terminology realized eschatology. It's as if the human is in hell already. That's how perilous it is to exist outside of Christ. And those disregarding are in this state of condemnation. But the promise offered here is conversion. From perishing to not perishing. From doom to destruction to eternal life. That's the, that's the exchange that's being offered here. But Jesus says you must be born again. Now it's at this point that Nicodemus kind of tin hats Jesus. He looks at him in incredulity and says, What? How in the world could a person get back into their mother's womb and be born again? He's basically saying that's ridiculous, Jesus. What you're telling me is kind of ridiculous. It can't happen. So Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water, meaning his first birth, And of the spirit, I would submit representing the amniotic fluid of his mother or her mother and the spirit of God. Flesh gives birth to flesh. We were talking, the, the water is referencing the physical, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. A father is responsible for physical life. But the heavenly father is responsible for spiritual life. We, have, we are both physical and spirit. Unless our spirit is made alive by the Holy Spirit, who's the only one who can do that, we will perish. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, you should not be surprised by saying this. You, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This is a work of God that is done. So what's the promise here? Not perishing, 
What, how is this promise then now going to be made possible? Notice what Jesus says to him now in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, this statement comes on the, uh, right after Jesus kind of looking at Nicodemus saying, you are among the religious elite teachers and you don't understand this, what I'm telling you? There have been many touch points in the Old Testament that should have helped you to understand what I'm talking about. And so he references now an Old Testament incident that Nicodemus absolutely would have known. And so do, so do most, most of us here. In Numbers chapter 21, way back at the beginning of your Bible, there is an incident where God has rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt and has taken them into the wilderness to save them, to, to rescue them. And they begin to criticize God. They begin to complain about the food, the lack of food, the lack of water, the food they don't like. And God determines to judge their criticism of him. He sends among them poisonous snakes. And the poisonous snakes begin to bite them and kill them. And Moses cries out. At the end of verse 7 of Numbers 21, Moses cries out in prayer that the Lord would, would take the snakes away from us. And he prays for the people that they might be saved, that they might be rescued. And God's instructions to Moses is to create a likeness of the serpents, a bronze snake, put it on a pole and lift it up and offer to people a rescue from his judgment. If they will acknowledge, if they will look at the rightful judgment, the snakes that represent the judgment of God, if they will look at this and recognize the rightness of God's judgment, and they will trust God for God's solution to their peril, that he alone can save them, that he alone can rescue them, that he alone has made a way for them, they will be rescued. If they look by faith, believing that God will save them, they will live. If they refuse to look, if they refuse to trust, then they will continue to perish. And now Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's referencing his cross work that Jesus would go to the cross it would be God's solution for man's peril. That God would cause for the Son of God to be placed, lifted up on a cross. And if people would look at that cross that represents the judgment of God on our sins and the representation of Jesus Christ 
who substituted himself for our sins, if people would trust that God's solution and only solution was Jesus Christ's substitute um, death for our sins, we could be saved. And those who will not look to Jesus will not live. Jesus, the Son of God, must be lifted up. Religion can't make this promise happen. Human solutions can't make this promise happen. Only the Son of God lifted up on the cross. And we recognizing that that judgment should have been on us. The right judgment of God against sin is death. That should have been us. If we will trust that God has made a way and the only way, we will be saved. We will not perish and we will have eternal life. And so Jesus had to be lifted up onto the cross, which was the first step to his exaltation. And then Jesus was lifted out of the grave. And then Jesus was removed from this earth and ascended to heaven. You see the movement of Jesus lifted up on the cross, lifted out of the grave, lifted into heaven on our behalf. The judgment of death was reversed by an action of belief and trust in God's solution for our peril. So let me ask you another question. How has God loved the world? He's made a way. How has he loved the world? In verse 16, it says this, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. In, in other words, this, this is telling us this is how God loved the world, like so. Because God is love. And this is how he has expressed his love. It isn't sentimental love. It isn't soft. It isn't permissive. It is an act of incomprehensible love on behalf of God for us, what God has done for us. It says here he gave his one and only son. Once again, he's using a phrase that would make perfect sense to, to Nicodemus as an Old Testament teacher. He would realize that, that, that Jesus is placing before him a picture of incredible love inexplainable love, unthinkable love that was demonstrated by Abraham when God asked Abraham to take his one and only son, Genesis 22, using the exact phrase, his unique son, his one-of-a-kind son, because Abraham had another son. He had a son, Ishmael. But this is the one-of-a-kind. This is the unique son. This is the son of promise. This is the son I gave to you that would cause you to have an, a heritage of, of offspring that would be as numerous as the, the sand on the, on the seashore or the stars in the universe. That son. You take him and you slay him. You sacrifice your one and only son. And they're pictured for us and now pictured for Nicodemus, who is now brought into an awareness of what that Old Testament uh, incident was all about. That God was picturing for himself his immense love for us, that he would sacrifice his one and only son. Think about it from your own perspective. Think about you being asked to sacrifice your one and only son. 
Not for lovable people, but for people who hate you, for people who curse you, for people who've turned away from you, for people who've disregarded you, for people who've joked about you, for people who are completely against you, and yet you would give your son to die for them. There's no explanation, there's no human explanation for that kind of love. Nicodemus, this is what God is offering to you. And this is not in one tiny bit about how lovable or deserving the world is. Not one tiny bit. This is how loving is God. Not that we loved him, but he first loved us. That's what caused John later on, 1 John chapter 3, to remark How great is the love of God that he lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. Literally, John there is saying, from what universe, from what planet of even thinking could this have ever happened? That God would lavish his love upon us and call us children of God. And the language here is entirely sacrificial. The world has no qualifications whatsoever to be loved by God. You and I have no qualifications whatsoever to to have the least of God's love. But that he of his grace would love us. Not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. Because he's chosen to love us. This is all about the expression of how glorious God is. His love for us displays his glory to us and the universe. How glorious is God? He loves people who don't deserve to be loved. That's how glorious. God gave his greatest gift to meet the greatest need, to provide the world the greatest opportunity to have the greatest relationship, to experience forever the greatest promise, to receive the greatest possession, eternal life, and life with God forever. There is nothing that compares to this. So let me conclude our time together with one more big question that will result in another ultimately. How can this promise be real in your life? This is the greatest promise that's ever been offered. The single greatest promise, not perishing, but having eternal life. How can this be real in your life? How can you be born again? The answer is in verse 16. Whoever believes in him. Whoever believes in Jesus. Your eternal destiny is entirely based on what you do with Jesus. Entirely. the very end of the section we read this morning, Jesus is the one who 
serves as the dividing mark of humanity, human thinking, human reality. He brings to light who and what people really are. You're either a doer of evil, a hater of light, a lover of darkness, or he says in the text, you live by the truth. And it has, it's entirely based on what you do with Jesus. Here's how this works. It's an exclusive salvation. You're not saved just because you're a human being. You're not saved just because Jesus went to the cross. You're not saved because you're a religious person. You're not saved because you're a nice person or a charitable person. You're only saved if the Holy Spirit brings your spirit to life by believing in Jesus Christ. Your spirit must receive eternal life from the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Spirit. That's what born again is, by believing in Jesus. Otherwise, your spirit simply lives out its physical days until the living God withdraws the breath of life and you physically die and are eternally doomed to destruction. But if now, during this life, the Holy Spirit brings your spirit to life, you have received eternal life and you will not perish. That's the promise here. There are two key realities that encompass what it means to believe here. They are this. Based on Jesus talking about the serpent lifted up, the first is this, that you believe that in and of yourself you are in a state of grave peril. You can't save yourself. You are under judgment. And unless you look up to the cross of Calvary and what Jesus has done and recognize that you deserved to be on that cross, then you are not one who believes. Because Jesus said, whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Your sin separates you from God and his life. God is sin intolerant because he's holy. But God's loving act of sacrifice and Jesus' death on the cross has made it possible for the penalty of sin to be removed from you by looking and living on Jesus. The second is this, that you must fully, completely, unwaveringly believe what is promised is true and that Jesus is the only one in whom to trust. That's why John wrote at the end of his gospel in John 20, 31, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. See, um, 
we need to be very clear on what this word believe actually means. Because this is critical, isn't it? When you look at this promise and you realize the condition on this promise is whoever believes, we need to know what that really means. I've, I've encountered so many people through my journey in ministry who have said, I, I, I don't know, I'm not sure, I, I think I believe, I don't know if I believe, I'm not sure about, I'm not sure about my salvation. What, what am I missing? Perhaps, perhaps what people are missing is a fuller understanding of what this word believe actually means. And part of our challenge of struggling to understand what believe means is because of how it is, uh, how our language interprets the original. You see, in the New Testament, this word believe is actually the verb form of faith. We don't have a verb form of faith. If we did, it would be faithing. Are you faithing today? That's actually what is meant here. What Jesus actually said to Nicodemus, what Nicodemus heard Jesus say, is whoever is faithing in Jesus will not perish. Whoever's faithing. The one who believes faithing is acting on the basis of faith that's been given him by the grace of God. The word of God says this, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself. The grace is this undeserved loving gift of God to us. He gives us the power to believe. You, you've heard me say on multiple occasions, if you can believe in Jesus, believe in him. And, and I mean it exactly the way I say it. Because this is exactly what Jesus is talking about here in Born Again. If you can trust in Jesus with all of your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, if you can believe that God has made a solution for our salvation and that that solution is Jesus Christ going to the cross of Calvary and paying for your sins by dying for you, if you can believe that with all of your heart, if you can put faith and believe that if you believe that, God will save you, then you qualify as the person under the description of whoever believes. Uh, my, James Boyce put it this way, your faith is your title deed to the promise of not perishing and having eternal life. That you can believe with all of your heart in Jesus is your title deed to your inheritance of not perishing and having eternal life. What it says, if you can believe, it means the grace of God has been activated and applied to your life. Because the offer of salvation is open to everyone. But the grace of God must be applied to your life through faith that God also gives you and enables you to have. It's, an, uh, on wonder, it's a wondrous salvation. From first to last, it's all of God. But you must respond to the offer that God makes to you. And you can and you will if God is calling you to himself. That's why I say if you can believe, believe and be saved. Your faith is God applying his grace. 
So my question then this morning is this, as we close, do you believe in Jesus? This is not about mental assent. This is not hope so. This is yes. I absolutely believe that God has made a solution for my salvation to take away my sins and that solution is Jesus Christ who was raised up on a cross to die for me and as I look at that cross I realize that I belong there but God in his mercy and love made his son a substitute for me that by believing in him I might have eternal life that's it that's the salvation offer and if you respond in faith to that offer Jesus gives you his Holy Spirit who makes your spirit come alive forever. It's a done deal. It's settled forever. You will not perish, but you will have eternal life. That's the glorious truth here. So I'm, I'm making a, a question. I'm stating a question to you this morning. Do you believe in Jesus? To those of you who are watching online, Maybe there's someone who's never, ever heard this before or you've heard it a thousand times, but today God has spoken to your heart and is applying his grace, undeserved love to you and enabling you by faith to believe this. Or maybe someone in the room. You've been here multiple times, but you have never responded to this offer of salvation. You've never responded to this promise that you could not perish but have eternal life. The offer is open to you this morning. Jesus is offering you. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. So in a few moments, our musicians are going to, to lead us in a final song. And I want to point out to you again, to everyone, to those of you here and those watching, that this offer of salvation is available and open today, right now. And there are only two options in life. There's perishing or there's eternal life. There's no third choice. There's no other option. And that's for all of humanity. It's either perishing or eternal life. And it has everything to do with what you do with Jesus. I'm going to, uh, and the pastors who are in the room, we're going to be right here at the very front. If God has spoken to your heart today, and you want to respond to him in faith, we would love to pray with you. You come forward as we're singing this song together. You come forward and, and we'll pray with you and make certain that you have responded to this great truth. This is the offer of eternal life. This is the greatest promise that has ever been made. This is the most important promise that's ever been made. Don't leave here without embracing that promise for yourself if you're online we want you to connect with us email us call us whatever we want to talk to you we want to make sure that you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior father the message of salvation has been delivered the offer of salvation is open the work of salvation has been done and completed by Jesus Christ salvation is of the Lord so, Father, I pray that if anybody needs to respond to this message, that you, by your grace, you will enable them to believe that Jesus 
is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing they might have life in his name and the work that Christ has done for them. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Because whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. I think the most appropriate benediction for us this morning as a congregation make a declaration of what we believe is to declare the scriptures again. John 3.16 to once again as a congregation state that great promise verse. Will you do it with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Oh God, this morning we just want to thank you and praise you for your saving work, for your grace to love us, to enable us to believe, and to give us eternal life, to rescue us from perishing to living forever with Christ he's all we need we love you we pray Lord for those who are online with us today Lord I just I just believe there's hearts online today that are not in line with Christ I pray Lord that you will do powerful saving work because that's who you are you're a saving God. Our God saves. So we praise you and thank you today in Jesus' powerful and precious name. Amen and amen.